out of our league. Something smelled of burnt air, and back we ran. I carried Isaiah on my back, dragged Isaiah through, Griffin through the mud, our flip-flops now just muddy impediments to getting back to the safety of the car. And the boys, I will note, who beforehand I was happily checking off my internal list of, yes, I will teach them the beauty I adore, now made sure they swore to me they were never going on a hike again. <laughs> so this experience, though, I tell it to you because I want to tell you this was glory. It was frightening, and it was not glory because it was an uh, angry God stomping around upstairs. It was because I was all of a sudden aware of every nerve in my body. I was aware of the magnificence of those mountains, their hugeness compared to my smallness. It was as though I had been looking through a, at a sunrise through a phone camera. You ever try to take a sunrise with a phone camera? It's the worst picture. It turns out muddy and small and constrained, and then you take it on the camera and you go, what was I thinking? That's a real sunset. That is worth uh, glory. And so I imagine that there were similar real beating hearts, clammy hands, real butterflies in the stomach, and this story that Jesus tells that the people felt where they hear thunder or the voice of an angel at the end when Jesus asks, Father, glorify your name. This Hebrew word for glory is a Shekinah. It's a feminine representation of the divine dwelling among us. It's like a bird who makes its nest and cares for its young there close in the tree. It's Shekinah that Israelites experience as they traveled through the wilderness with a pillar of fire or cloud by day and fire by night. I think of glory as those thin spaces, liminal, right on the edge where the divine seeps through and it's as close as our breath. But I also know that to perceive glory is not always easy because God doesn't speak in thunderstorms every day, thankfully for many of us. But I also think we hunger for glory, because to be near glory is to be fully alive. It's to be in the flow of God's joy coursing through creation. If we are then to experience this glory, this Shekinah, I think we have to be like bird watchers. If you've ever been around a bird watcher, you know they see things in nature that you don't see. They see birds that are the color of trees. And you think, where in the world? Give me those binoculars. Well, they look carefully, they look quietly, they train themselves to see what others don't. So we must be here, we must be now, awake, if we are to see glory, not just in thunder and lightning and big sunrises, but also small silver fish that are there for a moment leaping or fleeting gazes from someone we love, disappearing quarks, photons, peaceful resistance, all of these are joy-filled glories. Of course, that's only the beginning of Jesus' answer. He knows that glory can too easily become sugar-sweet sentimentality, right? Covers over pain, becomes a Hallmark card written off as a commodity. It's too easily co-opted into the glory of Solomon's wealth or the glory of a deathly military parade. So in the next breath, what does he ask us to do? He says something so good. He says, well, go into the earth like a seed to the place where brown leaves fall, where the dead are buried and small seeds lay dormant. 
Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it can only be a single seed, he says. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. We can guess that these disciples and these Greeks, you know, they nod their heads. This is a good horticultural fruit. But you can also see him going, yeah, but we came all this ways for more than the opinion section of ancient farmer magazines. So Jesus does oblige and continues on by trying to explain that those who love their lives lose them. But whoever hates their life in this world will keep them eternally. This is not a Reader's Digest friendly passage. It troubled me and should probably trouble anyone who has a mother like mine and worries about therapy bills that come from self-hatred. My mother was a psychologist, so had some insight into these things. It is worth noting, though, that there's a small and little three-word qualification here. He says, hate these li our lives in this world. And for John, the world is often used as a shortcut for describing the not as it should be, the broken ways that we experience life. If glory is big and wonderful and it is the dwelling of God among us, then the world in John is the absence of this, the absence of God that we also experience. There's a poem uh, of the empire, and I've only recently started reading poems, uh, but it is something I have very much enjoyed. And this one is by Mary Oliver, and it's, I think, an apt description of what a world absent from God starts to look like. She writes, we will be known as a culture that feared death and adored power, that tried to vanquish insecurity for the few and cared little for the penury of the many. We will be known as the culture that taught and rewarded the amassing of things that spoke little, if at all, about the quality of life for people, other people, for dogs, for rivers, all the world, in our eyes, they will say, was a commodity. This is what Jesus is talking about when he tells us to hate our lives in this world, to hate the ways in which we adore power and in which we treat the world as a commodity. If we do not give up this way of life, we are risking uh, being seeds that are never planted and thus never sprout. Because seeds, they're made to be planted, right? They're made to burst open. They're made to push down and up, yielding new life. A seed never planted. I think of like a popcorn seed, right? It remains hard. It remains unfruitful. You can't eat it. And it yields nothing. But when it explodes, it yields something nourishing. And this is what I think is tragic to our teacher. If we are not planted, if we are not reckless in our love, is the, how the message translates this, to hate our lives in this world, reckless in our love. If we don't lose ourselves in love, then we never really discover this real and eternal life that Jesus wants for all of creation. I think you could hear that from our passage from Jeremiah, did you not? It said, over and over, God has made this covenant, this promise, I will be your God, I will teach you how to live, to bring humanity to a place where peace and justice kiss. And over and over, the covenant was broken. Jeremiah longs for something new, a world where the laws of peace and justice are no longer just imposed from the outside, have to do. 
but grow instead in the body and soil of our hearts. Jesus' strong words then should move us from apathy to resistance. To resist things like the money and the power and the fear that is obstructing any sort of gun law reform. Or the racist and the profit-driven prison complex that we know incarcerates way too high African-Americans and people of color. Or the sexual abuse and the harassment that the Me Too movement has highlighted and which is all too prevalent. So on and so on. We know that the problems of this world are many. When Jesus asks us to hate our lives in this world, he's telling us have no part in these deathly systems of oppression. Resist them with your whole body. But where to begin when these problems are so huge? They're big. I know. I have the temptation. It's in me to lassitude, a word I learned from a poem. It means the energy starts to seep out, fatigue or apathy, starting to give up hope. So I want to start a little closer just close to home, right here in our bodies. Jesus is not just speaking of grand ideas, right? He's talking about something that will happen to his body soon. Something that we're looking forward to as we journey through Lent, which is that he will be killed by the powers and buried so that his life, his body, will bear much fruit. So there's so much, I think, in this parable when we look at it concretely when we look at how we can let go and be reckless in our love. If we see ourselves as seeds in this passage, then we must be planted, Jesus says, in the humus. Not the hummus, but it comes from the same thing. We are humus beings. It's Latin, the word for ground. It's from the earth. Our bodies are integral and inseparable from our souls. To remain a seed is just to deny that we are bodies, to insist that our spirits or our minds are more important. Our bodies are just suitcases for brains, carrying us around to really important parts. No, no, no. To connect with our bodies is to connect with what Jesus is saying here. It's to connect with vulnerability, softness, pain. And this is a pretty radical act, I think, in our culture, when we see our bodies so easily as unlovely, in need of fixing. When's the last time you looked at your body and said, I like this body? I like that this body has the teachings, even though it is the source of my limitation. I know a little bit. I remember as a middle schooler, uh, I was bullied, I was teased, I was skinny as a rail. And I quickly learned that disembodiment could be protection. I closed down anger and shut off tears in seventh grade. It's too embarrassing. And I learned invulnerable was safe. To deny my body was to keep me able to move through middle school. Now, decades later, it still takes work to notice my body, to not just run through the pain and consider it as an afterthought, to notice constriction in my throat and allow that constriction to move its way towards fear. But I do think that this is the beginning of empathy. If we and if I allow our bodies to teach us vulnerability, weakness, presence in the here instead of just somewhere else in our heads. That is the beginning of empathy. So let me ask you, make it even more concrete. Do you feel more connected to your body when you leave church? I hope so, because this is where we come to practice these things. I know I appreciate the hymns we sing. Uh, where 
these are not just songs that I have to sing. And maybe this is because I'm a newbie Mennonite, but I have to listen really hard to you. I know that these are also not songs I can sing with my eyes closed, though maybe that comes in time too. But I have to read the music and see the people around me. I appreciate that we breathe collectively during prayer, that we realize that inhale and exhale remind us of God's presence. I like that our kids sit here and they run around and they remind us that they have noisy bodies that they are fully comfortable in, that they can distract us with them. Of course, there's always room to grow, right? Is it not easier sometimes to see the presence of Jesus in the blood and the wine and the, and the, uh, the bread than it is to see it in our neighbor's feet? I don't know. I just learned that maybe sometimes we Mennonites do foot washing. I also know it's the most neglected sacrament of the church. Is that maybe because it's so bodily? And there are those bodily expressions of joy that maybe make us, especially coming from a Western inherited church culture that came from the Enlightenment and loves to live in our heads and loves to sit in the ideas. When we start to learn from our African-American and our Pentecostal sisters and brothers, what can they teach us? Shouts of joy, amens during sermons, claps, dances. These are some ways which we could literally stretch ourselves. So I hope that when you leave this week, I hope when you leave each week, you do shed some of the calloused, protective disembodiment that so easily can accrete. And instead, come to a place of a little bit more embodiment, a little bit more presence. That this practice of being in your body, of listening to God's spirit here gives you the capacity to hear and respond to the suffering of others so that you can resist the ways in which deathly systems start to work out their ways of oppressing and denying justice to others. So that finally, finally, we might be worthy, worthy of glory, the joy-filled Shekinah that reminds us of who we were made to be. So I want to leave you with one more poem, also by Mary Oliver, which basically puts into 20 lines what took me 20 minutes to say. Of course. It's titled, When the Roses Speak, I Pay Attention. As long as we are able to be extravagant, we will be hugely and damply extravagant. Then we will drop foil by foil to the ground. This is our unalterable task, and we do it joyfully. And they went on. Listen, the heart shackles are not as you think. Death, illness, pain, unrequited hope, not even loneliness, but lassitude, ruse, vainglory, fear, anxiety, selfishness. Their fragrance all the while rising from their blind bodies, making me spin with joy. May it be so in our lives this week. Amen.